This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right, we want to welcome everyone who is joining us from Bloomberg Television. You are listening also to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Uh, safe to say one of the hardest hit industries as a result of the coronavirus has been the cruise industry. And joining us right now is Arnold Donald. He's Carnival Corporation's president and CEO. He's joining us from their headquarters in Miami. Arnold, it is great to have you back with us. How are you doing? Carol, thanks for asking. I'm great. How are you? Are doing, you doing okay? A, yeah, kind of getting used to uh, a new world order. And I guess the million dollar, billion dollar question, Arnold, you know that everybody has on their mind is how do you get the cruise industry? How do you get passengers back on ships? How do you get ships back at sea safely and responsi- responsibly around the world? Well, you know, Carol, first of all, you know, our primary uh, responsibilities and therefore our top priority is always compliance environmental protection, and the health, safety, and well-being of our guests, of the people in the places we go, and of course, our Carnival family, our shipboard and shoreside personnel. So, you know, the interests of public health is always in the forefront for us. And how do we get people back on ships? When there's um, social gathering and society has developed uh, the compensating measures that it's comfortable with, that we have effectively mitigated the spread of COVID-19, uh, and then we'll be able to cruise again. Now, there are a lot of people, as you know, Carol, who are ready to cruise right now. And in fact, we're looking at starting up in Europe where the spread has been mitigated substantially in places like Germany and Italy. And we're looking at starting up in September there, and a few um, cruise lines have. But there's a lot of pent-up demand you know, for travel in general, and especially for cruise. Well, and what I wonder, Arnold, though, can you kind of drill down a little bit? What are some of the specific protocols that you might put in place to get ships safely back at sea? I've been reading, you know, about different folks and what they might be considering different cruise lines. They're talking about no buffets, constant um, temperature checks, constant testing, maybe no excursions. What specific protocols will you be putting in place? Well, again, as you well know, we we have a lot of measures in place already on cruise Mm -hmm. that often shoreside. Uh, destinations don't already have or didn't have prior to COVID-19. We do medical screens. We were already doing temperature checks in many cases. Um, We had hand sanitizers throughout the ship and signs all over about washing your hands because we've had to deal with viruses in the over 700 ports and destinations we go to annually for many years. Now, of course, COVID-19 is especially unique because the whole world has shut down. And because of that, there's still a lot of learning around COVID-19. As you know, from all the scientists, they're still aligning around epidemiology, they're aligning around testing, they're aligning around the role of testing. The one thing everybody right now is aligned on though, is that you know good personal care, in terms of wearing a mask, washing your hands, um, using hand sanitizers, you know, physical distancing at the appropriate times, but wearing a mask is a great way to mitigate the spread. So for the time being, any cruises that will happen will certainly incorporate some physical distancing and, you know, wearing masks. And, of course, what we already had was the, the hand sanitizers, et cetera. Beyond that, um, there's a, a plethora of possibilities, but it depends on the destination, 
depends on the level of community spread in that destination, et cetera. So there could be various testing protocols. I mean, that's a possibility. Uh, for the U.S., it's premature. You know, we're not ready to sail here yet. Um, obviously, the community spread is still pretty vibrant here in the U.S. Right. And uh, we're, we're not in a position to sail here. And we're walking cautiously in the other places, too, because our primary interest is to stand with everyone else in mitigating the spread of COVID-19. But I did read your, your Costa Cruz's safety protocols, and you talked about three tests for crew members before boarding. Um, you also talked about, of course, social distancing, new filters. Um, entertainment will have more shows on during the day so that there's smaller groups. And then also no right. self-service restaurants, so no buffets, which for many who go on a cruise, they're pretty used to it. So there are some changes coming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For the ones that are going to sail now, we have to be ready, just like hotels today. Any hotel that's open today has to deal with the current situation and the limited knowledge there is. And so for Costa, we are deploying a number of testing protocols. Obviously, for our crew, uh, we have not only testing, but quarantine, et cetera, because it's really important for us to have the clue, crew um, you know, safe from the beginning and then to keep them safe. And obviously, um, once we get guests on board, uh, we'll have protocols on board for them. I do wonder how you do it safely. I mean, Arnold, you know this industry better than everyone uh, and better than most in terms of uh, lay personnel. But I wonder how you do it safely because there have been some smaller cruise operations that have come out of Europe, come out of Alaska, Tahiti. um, And I believe there were at least 10 crew members aboard um, your AIDA cruise ships out of Germany that contacted the virus um, ahead of you getting ready to kind of get back uh, to the seas. Um, That was in August. So I just wonder how do you do this safely when... And even when some small cruise operations are starting to go back out on the water and still having problems with the virus and people are contacting the virus. Carol, I think there's two stages. One is you want to reduce the risk of having um, the COVID-19 come on board from shore. So that's the first thing. So you test um, and you monitor and you quarantine in the case of the crew. So the ones you mentioned on AIDA, you know, those crew members were tested before they left their home country. And then they were tested again once they arrived in Germany. And we got some positives. They were then retested again. In a couple of, in several of those cases, the individuals got a double negative test after that, which meant they had a false positive. And then the others were obviously isolated and quarantined. And so the risk of them spreading it on board was zero because we wouldn't have them sail. Okay. Now, once you're at that level, the the next question is, um, what else are you doing to mitigate spread? And that's where all the other practices on board in the event you do get someone on board who has COVID-19. If it's in society, um, if it's out there in general, chances are you eventually will have someone on board a ship that will have it. And so the, the trick then, of course, is to make certain that you are able to quickly identify that, you can isolate the person, and that during the time they were exposed, there was plenty of mitigation of risk protocols in place, so the probability of spread has been greatly reduced. And that's where, you know, wearing masks, physical distancing, washing your hands, um, using a hand sanitizer, et cetera, all come into play. Arnold, I do also wonder, you know, what are your plans for passengers and crew members who do get sick in the future? You know, you know the horror stories of ships that were, you know, basically lost at sea. They couldn't find a home port. You, I know, and your team have spent, you know, a long time repatriating, you know, your crew members back home. So what do you do? Will there be a way to airlift passengers off ships? What will you do? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we had to repatriate over 80,000 crew members, and it took us quite a while with borders closed and uh, airlines shut down, et cetera. So it took us 
several months to effectively do that, but we were eventually able to do it. With regards to now, you know, that was before. Now there's enough understanding. We would not go to a destination where we did not have a plan already in the event that there was COVID on board. We're not going to tie up thousands of people off of one positive COVID case or a couple of positive COVID cases. You know, we would have the protocols in place to ensure, one, that the individual is taken care of, who, whoever has it, that we can get them the care they need. Um, and then number two, that everyone else uh, is, is unaffected. You know, we would have some form of, of contact uh, tracing on board so we know who were the most exposed people. But we have to have those protocols for each destination. We go to 700 ports and destinations around the world. So they're all not going to have the exact same protocols. And, and, but we will not go to a place where we haven't established exactly in the event there is a COVID case, exactly what's going to happen. All right, but you're not worried about, as we know, this virus, you know, spread so so quickly um, that you could go out to sea and end up with a handful of passengers or a lot more passengers, hundreds of passengers, and be kind of stuck at sea again. I mean, I'm just curious, kind of the worst case no, scenario, we, we Arnold, what would you do no, in that case? We won't, we won't sail on this situation where we could be stuck at sea. I, I think, um, again, there's a lot more knowledge now than mm-hmm. when that was happening. Uh, number one, you know, we'll have some capability of testing on board. When that happened before, we didn't. Uh, we, we were, there's a lot of understanding now about how to mitigate spread. Uh, back then, nobody was talking about, you know, while you were cruising, you know, potentially wearing masks or physical distancing, that, that kind of thing. Um, and similarly, we have to look at the incidence of spread in a community. You know, we're not going to probably sell out of a community where the incidence of spread is very high. Uh, because you're almost certainly then going to have it, have it on board. Um, so we, we have to have the protocols. We have a great um, group of advisors, um, scientific advisors. Right. A number of them participated in a, a, a summit on COVID that we held with the World Travel and Tourism Council. It wasn't about travel. It wasn't about cruise. It was about the science of COVID. And um, a number of our advisors participated in that, um, that, that we we produced and, and, and um, I co-hosted with Gloria Guevara from WTTC. Right. And so we're using their advice. And of course, every destination is studying this, every port, every city, every nation. And we'll as always be in compliance. Uh, and so we'll all have a protocol in place because no one wants, you know, thousands of people, you know, stuck at sea. No, uh, nobody no, wants that. no doubt about yeah. that. And I am curious about guidance from the CDC. I mean, what are you hearing, Arnold, right now from the CDC about what they want to see specifically from Carnival before heading out at sea again? Well, CDC is concentrating initially on uh, what we call the pause. Uh, you know, a, a number mm-hmm. of us volunteered to stop sailing and so on. And then the CDC issued uh, no sail orders. And so they've concentrated on the ships because even though we're in a pause, we still have 12,000 crew required to minimally man our ships. The ships are still out there. They're still operating. Right. And so the CDC focused on that initially. Uh, and now they've started a, a beginning to ask for public input and uh, to be submitted in terms of consideration um, for crews going forward. Uh, but there have been no specific direction given on what's expected. Uh, what we're going to do is, again, use our you know, expert advisory group to inform us, to use the experiences around the world that we have and others have. And we'll put together, you know, the appropriate protocol at the time we think that it makes sense to begin to consider 
cruising again um, out of the U.S. So the CDC isn't saying anything, Arnold, like, okay, positivity rates, we want to see it, you know, below 10%, below 5%. They're not giving you any kind of guidance like that, specific guidance. No, not at this time. And I, and I don't think, you know, I, I don't, I think it's fine that they're not. Yeah. Again, you know, right now, look at the U.S. In many places, we're talking, still talking about sheltering in place, a stay at home, very limited. Universities are figuring out what to do. Schools are figuring out what to do. And as long as we're not, you know, just comfortably socially gathering, then we shouldn't be talking about cruise. Now, you can comfortably socially gather with different protocols, physical distancing, wearing masks, et cetera. And, and at that point, when, when we're comfortably doing that in U.S. society, then we can seriously, you know, take a look at crews. Yeah. No, listen, I, I get it. It's my first day back in our headquarters here in New York City. <laughs> right. I have been home since mid-March. Hey, listen. Exactly. It's like, right. it's crazy, right? Like, as we've tried to figure this out. Arnold, one thing I want to ask you while we're talking about the CDC. I mean, the CDC, you know, um, you guys have read everything that they have put out. They have put out a strongly worded order as they continue to do the no sale and push that off uh, for ship sailing here out of the U.S., they say the current scientific evidence suggests that cruise ships pose a greater risk of COVID-19 transmission than other settings. And, you know, they mm-hmm. talk specifically some of the research that, you know, the Carnival Diamond Princess back in February, they talk about it transmitting COVID-19 at a reproduction rate that was four times, roughly four times higher than what we saw at the epicenter of Wuhan. You know, do you agree with the CDC's assessment that cruise ships pose a greater risk of COVID-19 transmission than anywhere else? I think what the industry will do is show the history that we have um, with other viruses, um, for example, um, norovirus and, and other viruses that happen, and show how, in fact, you know, historically the industry has successfully mitigated the risk of spread on ships, um, you know, lowered the risk relative even to shoreside type of activities. Now, we can't make that claim today for COVID-19, mm-hmm. but af- obviously that's what we aspire to and what we're working on. And I think we'll show a body of evidence um, to the CDC, which I'm sure they are also accessing. As I mentioned, we're being informed by very capable scientists and medical professionals around the world um, to, to take a look at this. But let me assure you, as a company and as an industry, uh, the cruise industry, nor us as a company, want to expose any guests to greater risk than they would have in similar activities shoreside. And so our focus is to make certain that, you know, we are managing that risk at minimum, you know, relative to what they would experience shoreside. And we aspire, of course, that when they cruise with us, with us they have less risk than the same experience shoreside. Now, when you talk about the Diamond Princess, mm-hmm. I think people have to remember, number one, that happened really early on when there was very little understanding of um, COVID-19. Number two, that ship was a quarantine ship. The ship was in quarantine for two weeks. It was not just a normal cruise, okay? It was, it was a quarantine ship. And so uh, while it's an example of something that can happen, I think the practices today would be dramatically different than what existed at the time of the Diamond Princess. Would you have and shut was different down? Than what, and, it and was different than what happened sub, on subsequent cruise right. um, sailings. So, yeah, Arnold, do ahead. you think if that happened today, um, and forgive me for, for interrupting, do you think if no, that no happened problem. today, you, yeah. would, you would have shut down immediately in terms of all operations, no new ships would go out? Because I, I do wonder when you look back mm. at February and March, you know, 
what did you learn? What regrets that you have that maybe do you wish you had shut down ships, you know, right after the news of uh, some of the, the, the virus cases on, on Diamond Princess? Carol, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, not any analogy or breakdown if you push it too far, but, but should the world have shut down immediately once Wuhan province had a situation, you know, with COVID-19? Uh, I think you can only operate in the time you're in with the information you have. You know, back when Diamond Princess first started, there was not community spread around the world on COVID-19. There was very limited understanding of it. And even at the time of the sailing of Diamond Princess, there was very little understanding, you know, about COVID-19. Even now, we are still learning every day, you know, about this virus. And so it's not to make an excuse. It's just simply to point out that at that point in time, we did what we always do and what we will continue to do. We complied. We, we complied with every um, authority there was, the Royal Health Organization, the Japanese Ministry of Health. Actually, we didn't manage the quarantine or any of that. Right. You know, as soon as we identified it, you know, we went to the, Jap- the Japanese Ministry of Health, told us what to do. And so, you know, our number one priority, uh, you know, our highest responsibility is compliance, environmental protection, health, safety, and well-being. And so, you know, we would do that today, you know, whatever is the informed, you know, knowledge um, that exists uh, and whatever authority is telling us, you know, what we need to do, we're, we're going to comply with that as, well, as we always would. You know, it's interesting. And I think we all feel this way, Arnold, even those of us um, in the media world, I think we were hearing stories and trying to make sense of it. But I think I, I do wonder, do you feel like you got good advice from the WHO, from the CDC? Do you feel like uh, out of Washington that the information decision making that you were getting at that time, that it wasn't really good, that it was rather muddled? I think, look, at the time, you know, Washington had very little to do with, for example, the incident in Japan, okay? Very little to do with that. And, and I think that um, uh, all of these agencies are made up of people who uh, are trying to serve the best interests of, of society and, and the public health. And so I think they do the best job they can with the information they have at the time. Right. Um, and, and I think, again, uh, are mistakes made? Of course mistakes are made. Um, but, but it's not because of, you know, just irresponsible behavior. Um, it's because people are genuinely trying to analyze and figure out what to do. And, and this is new. And we just have to keep in mind, it's not like there was COVID-19 popped up one day and there was perfect knowledge. Even today, we are still learning every day about this virus. And I think that we just all have to stand together, uh, uh, you know, around the world. Uh, and share the knowledge and learnings and experience and figure out what are the best protocols to mitigate spread of of this virus, while at the same time allowing society not to create other unintended consequences, whether they be economic or other health issues. So talk to me a little bit about your timeline for getting back to sea, because I know when we initially talked about doing this interview, we thought that there would be ships this past weekend or yesterday coming out of uh, Germany. And I know all of this is being kind of pushed off to September. So tell me about your expectations for September. Do you anticipate, you know, a lot of ships coming out at sea? Give us a little idea. And I do wonder, I know the no-sail order has been uh, pushed off certainly here Mm -hmm. in the United States. What are your expectations for the U.S. market? Well, first of all, yes, September, we will start in Germany, mm-hmm. and we plan to start in, in Italy. Um, we didn't start previously in Germany, even though we have a German brand, AIDA, which sources 98% Germans. Right. Uh, the ships are flagged in Italy, and so we weren't able to get Italy flag clearance, but now we have it, and we also have it um, for Italy. 
And so we'll start with a few ships. Initially, the ships will be cruises to nowhere. They'll, they'll go out to sea and then come back. So just a few days of cruising. That's, that'll do a multiple things. Number one, it allows us to uh, manage effectively you know, the folks on board, uh, to handle uh, the new processes, make sure all the training we've given our people and the new way to conduct and, and handle things is, is practiced in an efficient way. And it mitigates this, any risk of you know, spread from stopping at a destination where you might bring COVID on board after you've you know, um, screened initially to, to get started. So that's the initial. But then shortly thereafter, we will have you know, some longer cruises and we will go to some destinations, again, approved by you know, the flag states and, and by the destinations right. with the protocols in place that they want. But it'll be a few shifts at a time initially. And I suspect that overall, the industry will roll out slowly. With regards to the U.S., Carol, it's early. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. We've extended a number of our brands have gone beyond the no-sale order already in terms of Does it of happen 2020, Arnold? Or do you think it's more a 2021 No, I, I think, I know, I think there's a possibility if, if mm. we can get the mitigation of spread down and with people going back to college and high school and elementary schools and, and movement of people, if we can manage the mitigation of spread where we're, we're seeing instead of a surge, a real decline, then I think we can begin to consider, you know, um, social activities of which, of course, cruise is one. Hey, listen, just got about uh, time for one last question, Arnold. Um, sure. What is Carnival going forward? Uh, I've seen analysts over at Stiefel, they've talked about a leaner Carnival Corporation that the pandemic has allowed you to get rid of some assets that maybe you needed to, uh, and that longer term, this is a positive. What kind of company is Carnival going forward? Just got about a minute left. We'll be smaller um, with, in terms of number of ships. We had 106 ships or so. We've already um, uh, either recycled or sold about 15 ships. Uh, those ships, that would have happened over a few years. It just happened this year because obviously not going to generate any revenue in the short term here, and, and we can eliminate some costs as we prepare a longer runway to withstand, you know, have along this thing last. Um, but overall, we're going to be a stronger company. Um, you know, it's painful. We, we've had to take some people actions, but we have a deep bench. And once we, once we start up again, we'll be bringing a number of those people back and we'll ask some new talent. But, but we'll be leaner and stronger. But most importantly, we'll still be the best vacation experience there is and uh, one of the best vacation values there is. Well, I've been on a ship, so I wish you well. And uh, the future should be certainly interesting as we all kind of get back to a new normal. Uh, Arnold, thank you so much. Arnold Donald, he is the Carnival Corporation president and CEO, joining us from their headquarters in Miami. It is time now for our uh, Bloomberg Business Week feature here. Joining me is Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber, alongside Seattle Bureau Chief uh, Dina Bass. And the article is TikTok looks like a dangerous dance move for Nadella's Microsoft. Joel, first of all, any kind of pun like that, I dig. I can't write them, so I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, but in theory, they did something good with LinkedIn. You wonder, well, what would be the bigger shock for TikTok, right? What made you write the story? That's right. Well, um, as you know, Dina and, and Shelly Banjo, who, who wrote the story, kind of raised their hands and they said, you know, for all for as much sense as this might make um, for for Microsoft, you know, it's like all their competitors are sort of on the sidelines. It doesn't totally jive with um, all the ways that Microsoft has really harmonized under uh, Nadella, and you know what what Nadella's really done, and we've we've written about this at length, um, including this cover story last year that we called the Nadella Sans. 
it was uh, it, really a, another great pun. Um, was a line around the cloud, um, and and that has really been the source of investment and growth for them. Um, so so TikTok, which is you know it, it sort of is the shiny object almost. It doesn't always make sense um, when you think about it, and you know you brought up LinkedIn there. But for every LinkedIn, there's also been, you know, dabbles in experimental things like Clippy that haven't gone so well. Um, so so uh, I'll turn it over to, to, to Dina there. And, and, you know, this is somebody who's in Seattle, watches Microsoft and has watched Microsoft for many years. And, and Dina, what's the counterintuitive sort of argument for uh, why, why this not, might not make so much sense for Microsoft? is a professional network of office workers. Microsoft knows a lot about office workers. They make software for them. They also bought, have successfully bought Minecraft, but they know a lot about gamers. The audience that fuels TikTok is teenagers and young adults. Uh, Microsoft doesn't know that much about them. They've done poorly in those markets in the past. Again, outside of gamers, those are not strong areas for them. And, and in fact, their consumer business over the years has, has, other than selling PCs to home users, hasn't gone very well, and Satya Nadella has largely pulled them out of many consumer areas. So I think there's a real question of whether they have any idea how to successfully maintain this kind of community, as hot as LinkedIn is. I think the other issue for them is because they've stayed out of these areas, uh, they've flown under the radar of a lot of really difficult issues, particularly around content moderation and U.S. and European regulation of that. TikTok has already been fined uh, by regulators in the U.S. for collecting data belonging to, to children. Uh, the New York Times had a story last week saying that they have a very large number of users who are underage. And for Microsoft to wade into this issue of having to filter out, you know, child sex abuse material, uh, potential terrorism um, material, racism, hate speech, to have to regulate political speech in a way that uh, various Congress people, uh, congressmen, congresswomen went after uh, Google and Facebook for in, in congressional hearings two weeks ago, you sort of have to wonder why does Satya Nadella want to get into that? So why does he, Dina? It, because the asset is a unicorn, not a unicorn in the way that people use it for tech startups to mean a company valued over a billion dollars, of which there are many, but a unicorn in the true sense of the, you know, one of a kind. Uh, it, it has a ton of appeal globally. It has a lot of U.S. users. There's great uh, revenue and profit potential there. It's hugely popular. And, you know, what I have heard from, from my sources is that, you know, Nadella and the board see this as potentially an opportunity to turn around that conventional wisdom we just discussed, that Microsoft doesn't know how to market to, to consumers or how to uh, do social media or advertising particularly well. It just seems like a, a good opportunity. And and how much of that is just the the advertising um, opportunity, uh, Dina? Because that that is you know the thing that they would be able to get here with by acquiring this teenage audience and and you know getting younger is that thing that Microsoft has really never had is that cool factor. Um, and obviously there could be huge revenue opportunities um, by tapping into that in ways that you know currently they don't ha really have that same same thing in this in the, in the way that you know the the facebook's of the world would 
Yeah, I, this with one stroke of a pen um, and a lot of regulatory approval, of course, because any deal would still have to be approved at several levels. But with one stroke of a pen, it would leapfrog them immediately into a market that, that Facebook and Google dominate, and then where Microsoft is largely absent. Microsoft has tried several times over the years to get into advertising. Uh, they bought a company called Aquantive. They had to write down almost the entire value of it. Uh, they have a search advertising business, but that's running off of their Bing search, which is, uh, you know, not super popular. So this would really get them into that market, um, you know, almost instantly. And and it's partially advertising and partially, as you mentioned, that age demographic. Microsoft really runs the risk, um, you know, again, apart from gamers, of missing out on that demographic and not being relevant to them. When You know, when I talk to students, to my own children and to other students, most kids in school are using Google Classroom, um, using Chromebooks, there, it's not the imperative to use Microsoft software for the way that there was for my generation for, and for you know, computer users in the first generations of the PCs in the 80s and the 90s. It, you know, kids now grow up and they can go through their entire day without using Microsoft software, really. Or maybe they have Windows on their computer, but they don't know. Often they don't even have Windows. So this is a demographic they've got to figure out how to be relevant to. I, I don't know if TikTok is the answer to that. They have to be cool, Alex. Yeah, I don't know if Microsoft seems cool. But so, Dina, we have like maybe 30 seconds left. Who makes more sense in buying TikTok? I think that's a hard question. We've heard from sources that Twitter has had conversations with them. There's certainly social media companies that have a better idea how to run this sort of thing, but the Googles and the Facebooks of this world would have antitrust issues. Remember, any buyer has to pass both antitrust muster and uh, you know, foreign trade, uh, uh, trade regu- and regulatory muster with the U.S. government, and it has to be approved by the White House. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Man, we are living in interesting times. Um, Dina, thank you so much. Dina Bass, Seattle Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Seattle. Check out her story in Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was joining us on the phone from Massachusetts. Some deal flow that we got to tell everybody about um, today. You probably already did to your TV audience, Ms. Steele. Yes. Uh, Sanofi, uh, making a pretty sizable deal, though. I mean, you may roll your eyes at what they bought, but it's still a $3.4 billion deal to buy biotech company uh, Principia. And uh, Sam Fazelli of Bloomberg Intelligence, who's covered the biotech space for decades, uh, joins us now. He joins us from France. Um, Sam, you spoke to me on TV, and you're like, yeah, this. who cares about this deal? No one cares. So thanks for that, uh, after I pitched you to radio. Um, but well, I guess the significance is more sort of how this industry is going to evolve throughout COVID. Yeah, so, sorry, uh, Alex, I'm sorry about earlier. I, I didn't mean nobody cares about it. I'm messing with you, it's fine. The deal's announced, the share price doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it's up about the average of what's happening in the pharma industry. So um, I think it's more about the fact that a lot of people had anticipated it. There was a lot of talk about this. So, I mean, it, COVID or no COVID, pharma companies are still, in fact, because of COVID probably, g- r- r- driven by the pandemic, driven by the macroeconomic situation, the pricing of drugs, the price pressure on drugs is going to continue. <clears throat> we had that already with um, in, in Europe um, uh, post the previous uh, 2008 uh, debacle that we had, and that obviously led to a uh, significant impact uh, two or three years down the road on pricing uh, the negotiations with, uh, with national buyers in Europe. So I suspect this, which is likely to be even more profound, is likely to drive the same. Now, the same in the U.S. You, you hear about drug pricing all the time in the U.S. So what that means is that companies need to have innovation. 
innovative drugs that really make a difference to people's lives and disease can make inroads and few people get in the way of getting those on the market and pricing them as open as possible. That's why innovation is important. That's why biotech is important. Yes, I totally agree. But I guess my, I guess one of the things... He's that- saving face from last time on TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, he saved the good stuff for us. I'm just going to say. So, Sam, what I do wonder is, is a deal like this make some other drug combination likely? Or, you know, is there somebody that's got to go and do a counter deal because of this? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I, it, I don't think so. <clears throat> I think there are other companies. There are lots of companies with these BTK-type drugs. Burst my balloon. That's fine. No, 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 no. But we've already had kind of one of these, oh, which was quite interesting. Enough. Loxo Therapeutics got taken out by Lilly for a much bigger number, about three times higher, back about a year and a half ago. And, and, and nobody had paid too much attention to the second drug they had in development, which was one of these kind of drugs. <clears throat> and that made a difference when it came to, uh, to the news on that drug, which is in the same class as the Sanofi Principia drug. <clears throat> and, um, but I think a lot of that kind of is playing out already. There's, there are only so many of these new molecules that mm-hmm. you're going to want to have competing with each other. By the time you get to the fourth or fifth, um, unless you're completely different and much better for some reason, you're not going to get much traction. And um, so I don't really see any other company necessarily benefiting from this deal. But the sector as a whole, I think people have been waiting for deals, as a whole could see some, uh, some more interest. And when I look at Bio- Smith Biotech, they're generally green today. Hmm. Fair point. Um, let's broaden it out for a second uh, to the overall virus. You're in France, um, and France was saying that every indicator for COVID is moving higher. You have nightclubs shutting down uh, in Italy. Bars are, and restaurants are crunching their time in Greece. Um, can you give me some perspective on this? Because when we hear that, it sounds bad. The market doesn't necessarily react. So I wanted to get sort of like what that means from Sam Pazelli's point of view. Yeah, sure. So I live, I don't live near Paris. Paris, obviously, like London, like New York, like the major cities, suffer in a slightly different way given the density of the population. I live closer to a city called Bordeaux. And when you walk around town, everyone's expected to wear a mask. And I have to tell you that I think 90, more than 95, 96% of people respect that. Mm. And they just do it in the streets, right? That's kind of what's being asked for people to do. In the provincial towns, you get a little bit less of that, but, but people are very diligent on this. And interestingly, despite that, um, you're getting the spikes, which seems to be, you know, I have a whole variety of ages of children, and the 18-, 19-year-olds have really been socializing as much as possible. That is, I think, where the core thing is, and I think that's pretty much known, that the, the virus is circulating in the younger, younger group um, and, of course, that obviously means that they're likely to bring it home and pass it on to the older group, unfortunately. Hey, Sam, just got about 45 seconds left. We caught up with uh, Carnival Corporation CEO and President Arnold Donald, and they're looking to start some cruises out of Germany and Italy come September. Does that make you nervous? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got you, we, we know what can happen on these things. People have call, called them uh, floating petri dishes. But at the end of the day, I don't know about the details of, of what they're going to do to keep the virus in check on board. 
I'll give you an idea. There was one boat, and I know we have little time here. Just about that, 25 that, seconds. Go ahead. 25 seconds. That left shore with about 120 people. None of them tested positive twice in a row. And there was an outbreak, and about 103 or 104 of them caught the disease. This wasn't a, mm-hmm. um, this wasn't a uh, cruise, but it was a boat. So you've got to watch out. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. It's a lot of people in a small setting and a closed setting. Um, Sam, thank you so much. Sam Fazelli, I thought he was killer. Sam's the best. I think he's better on radio than he was on TV. Wow, mean. <laughs> Sam's the best. Love Sam, love Sam. Senior pharmaceutical analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence right here on Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is draw time for the drive to the close. With us is Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management at BMO Private Wealth Canada on the phone from Toronto. Uh, Leslie, nice to have you here with us. You know, it's interesting. We continue, despite some of the troubling headlines about the economic outlook, about the virus, about so many different things about the upcoming elections, the markets, maybe even today, if we're off a little bit, except for text stocks continue to overall grind higher. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of people are wondering the same question and and you're not alone in in, in thinking about that. And um, I think the real question comes back to still the fundamentals. And we really are uh, well into a recovery. I mean, it's been a very uh, quick and deep downturn and now we're also experiencing a very quick and rapid recovery so there is some fundamental basis for uh, the movement in stocks or riskier assets and of course there's the liquidity question and and what's coming on uh, or what we're experiencing both on the monetary and fiscal stimulus side which really supports uh, markets moving higher so basically, thank you, Fed. We know you're going to be there, right, if we get into trouble. I mean, that's it, right? Simply put. Very much so. I mean, you have to think about uh, how important the Fed is and, and, and just in general, uh, low interest rates in fueling uh, our economy and our equity market. And, um, you know, we, we tend to sometimes uh, look at our own situation and look around and say, you know, I see a lot of... Uh, you know, stores or restaurants shuttering and, and bankruptcies are high. But uh, remember uh, the age-old expression, right, don't don't fight the Fed. And as long as we have uh, this level of liquidity in markets, um, that is going to continue to fuel uh, riskier assets uh, to move higher. All right. So good for investors who are potentially in the financial markets um, and taking on riskier assets. But what about kind of real people who are out there who maybe are on unemployment, maybe those benefits stopped, you know, maybe they, those, you know, temporary layoffs become a permanent layoff for them. When does that become more problematic and that we start to see that um, in terms of, you know, people who are out of work don't have money to spend and that ultimately impacts the economy? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a, a key question, that uh, divergence between Main Street and Wall Street. And that would be uh, one of the risks that we're watching uh, over the next few months, because this is really where we will start to see around the world uh, a, a change in uh, support uh, for citizens. And, you know, eventually we have to move off of the support level, especially if the economy is recovering. And I think that is where we could start to see uh, markets um start to flatline. Uh, what we've seen is is a very strong and fast surge, but uh, looking for that next move higher, we are going to have to see uh, a greater or a broader recovery in employment numbers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, the unemployment rate is falling, but we are a far uh, ways off of where we were earlier in the year when we were at that three and a half percent level in, in the U.S., for example. So you sent over some interesting research and it's entitled, it's got a great title. It's called Netflix at Home or Theme Park Thrills. Um, and I do feel like, you know, that's our world right now, right? Should I stay home, play it safe? I was just talking with some family members who want to go to Disney World or Disneyland, you know, but they're thinking maybe this is a, maybe not even a 2021 story, but tell us about that. Well, I think it was it was just that that concept of of do we continue on the path that we're on, or, or sorry, have been you know through lockdown since March, where we're all sort of laying low, staying at home, um, where those kind of what we would call COVID beneficiaries continue to um, to, to ride you know, higher, so the Netflix, the Amazons of the world, or are we going to see a broadening of our economy or economic recovery and start to see some of these um, more, let's call it the uh, the leisure-oriented uh, companies like a Disney, um, or, or even, you know, we talked about Carnival earlier in, in the program today. Um, you know, will we start to see that happen and, and broaden out this recovery? Because if it's only a few uh, companies driving the stock market, that doesn't really make for a very healthy recovery in in markets. And so what we want to see for that next level higher is a broadening out of the economy. How do you look at yields right now? 10 years, 68 basis points? Well, yields are, are, are really interesting because uh, since since March, there's really only been one story in, in yields, and it, it's been moving lower. And it's been interesting to watch what's happened over the last week. And this really ties into my comment about broadening out that recovery because what we started to see is yields started to move a little bit higher. And guess what? Those uh, high-performing um, uh, technology names started to underperform and we started to see the financials participating in, in the economic recovery. And we've also started to see some of our, you know, I'm in Canada in, in Toronto, but uh, in Canada, the mining sector is still an important sector. And we started to see a broadening out of recovery in uh, some of the more, um, not, not just gold, but some of the more cyclical metals, as well as things like forest products, such as lumber. And, and so if, if we, you know, we are seeing rates kind of nudge a bit higher. And I think think that is a reflection of uh, a, a small move higher in inflation. But also, um, you know, we don't know if that's sustainable, but interest rates will move higher if people start to believe that the growth, the economic growth is going to move sustainably higher. And, and that will broaden out the recovery. But do you believe well, that? Just got 30 yeah. seconds. Do you believe that's going to happen? I, I do believe that. Oh. I think that it may not be a you know straight line upward, but I do think that this economic recovery is going to broaden out uh, over time. Yeah. 
All right. Good stuff. Leslie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management at uh, BMO Private Wealth Canada, joining us on the phone from Toronto. That was more upbeat. Yeah, I don't know. I don't buy it. I didn't think you did. But I'm more pessimistic individual to begin with, so here we go. I just think I think there's a lot more shoes to drop that we haven't seen yet. Well, also, like, maybe the shoes just tread water. They don't go anywhere. Uh, we can go with the metaphor. Right. I have to think about that. Then you need, like, rubber shoes. Right. Galoshes. I don't know what that means, but it means something. <laughs> Not good. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.